Welcome to our eighth and final session of our study in the book of Hebrews. So far, we have listened to the writer of Hebrews speak to his Jewish audience about how the scriptures that they have studied and revered for all their lives hold the evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the true and better savior that they've been waiting for. He's showing them that it is not a betrayal of the faith of their fathers to put their hope in Jesus, but rather that Jesus Christ is actually the culmination or the fulfillment of all that their forefathers believed. This week, we'll approach the text in two sections. Section one will cover Hebrews chapter seven, verses 11 through 25, and we're calling that a better priesthood. Section two will cover Hebrews chapter seven, verses 26 through 28, and we're calling that perfect forever. Let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, and we thank you for the helper that you give us in the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. We pray that you would be guard over our hearts and minds as we learn together today. Amen. All right. Well, the writer of Hebrews has been talking a lot about Melchizedek. Have we all learned how to spell that now? When I was in college, my Old Testament survey professor would spell out words for us during his lectures. And it seemed like he would spell out every single name and city that we came across. He would even spell out Job, J-O-B. Like, I think I got that one, thank you. But as many times as he said the name Melchizedek when we were studying these verses in Genesis, he never spelled it out. And I think that might've been a little bit helpful. Well, Melchizedek seems like just a blip on the radar in Genesis, and then again in Psalm 110. But the writer of Hebrews is showing us exactly why he matters so much. In session seven, Jillian shared with us everything we know about Mel Melchizedek from what is recorded in Genesis, taking us through a summary of the account found in the first half of Hebrews chapter seven. And then in verse 11, the writer begins comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. But he couldn't have done that effectively unless he first gave us a solid understanding of who Melchizedek was, how he related to Abraham, and how even in a way he related to Levi. So the first half of chapter seven is a foundation for the argument that we see in the second half. Let's begin reading the text with verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive, arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Uh, under the old priesthood, perfection could not be attained. And let's pause for a moment to understand what the writer means when he says perfection. Now, he's not talking about a state of being sinless or faultless. And he's not saying that the law doesn't have the ability to make someone sinless, although that is a true statement. 
Rather, the use of the word perfection here and throughout the book of Hebrews is talking about reaching a state of, of fulfillment or completion, reaching a specific goal or a desired end. So what is the desired end to which the writer of Hebrews is referring? It's a right and restored relationship that God desires to have with his people. And the writer of Hebrews wants his audience to understand that this kind of relationship was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. If it had been, there would have been no need for a better priesthood. And we know that the better priest he's referring to is Jesus. And he's going to explain to his Hebrew audience why a better priest was needed and how Jesus is the only one qualified to fill that need. So did anyone besides me pause here and think, wasn't it God who created the Levitical priesthood in the first place? And God knows everything, right? He's omniscient. So didn't he know that it would fall short? Of course he did. My oldest son, who's 11, loves fishing. When he was six, we took the family for a camping trip to Voyagers National Park in northern Minnesota. He brought his fishing rod, one of those kitty ones that has a cartoon character on it. He was adorable, but not very adept at fishing. In fact, toward the end of our day on the lake, he tried to cast his line and he actually threw his entire rod into the lake. Well, he's gonna need a new fishing rod, I thought to myself as it faded from view into the deep water. But losing his rod didn't deprive us of our dinner. Those little rods aren't intended to bring in a meal-sized catch. The purpose of that rod is to teach a kid to learn to fish and to fall in love with fishing. The hope is that they will be outgrown and traded for something better, something that can help put dinner on the table. God did the same thing when he created the Levitical priesthood. God is perfect and he doesn't make mistakes. He creates exactly what he means to. The old covenant wasn't a mistake and the new covenant wasn't a do-over. At its inception, the old covenant, the law that could not bring about God's end goal for reconciliation was still perfect for his purposes. First, the law teaches us that we can never make ourselves righteous and it points us to the need for a better promise, a better covenant, a better priesthood. Second, the law teaches us a pattern of sin, repentance, and atonement that foreshadows the purpose of Christ's final sacrifice on the cross. And finally, the law teaches us the significance of the unblemished sacrifice and the sacrificial system as a whole so we can understand what Christ did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. Remember that back in verses one through 10, the author explained to us what he means when he says the order of Melchizedek. And now he's going to compare that priestly order to the Levitical priesthood, the order of Aaron that was secured by the old covenant. 
The first point that he makes is with regard to the qualifications or the requirements for being in the priestly order. Verse 12 says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Jesus doesn't fit the mold as high priest. As a Hebrew, you know that a high priest must come from the order of Aaron, from the tribe of Levi. The high priest serves until his death, and then the priesthood is passed to his son or most direct male descendant. As a result, genealogical records were necessary to prove relation and descent. This is the order of Aaron. But as we learned in session seven, in Hebrews 7.3, Melchizedek is described as being without father or mother or genealogy. There is no record of his ancestry. So, of course, he was not the same kind of high priest that Aaron was. The priesthood was not passed to him through the line of Levi. He wasn't a part of the tribe of Levi, and Levi hadn't even been born yet. He was from a different priestly order. And like Melchizedek, Jesus is from outside the tribe of Levi. So he doesn't qualify as high priest in the order of Aaron. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from jo Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Moses handed down the law from God that clearly said only Levites and only descendants of Aaron may serve at the altar. In fact, God tells Aaron in Numbers chapter 18, verses 6 and 7, he says, And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord, to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Jesus is such an outsider. He is not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, as his, geneal as his genealogical records clearly show. And any good Hebrew knows you can't be a high priest if you're not from Levi, descended from Aaron. Moses never gave any instructions about priests from the tribe of Judah. So if the writer of Hebrews is going to prove that Jesus is the true and better high priest, there has to be another legitimate path to priesthood. The law about who can be a part of the priesthood has to change. Remember in verse 11, we read that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. In this way, the order of Aaron was imperfect from its inception. So there was a need for a better priesthood through which perfection was attainable. Let's look on in verse 15. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So how is Jesus in the likeness of Melchizedek? Remember that Melchizedek was called king of peace. He served bread and wine. He received a tithe. He blessed Abram. And he was both priest and king. All these things are also said of Jesus. And Jesus became a priest not through genealogy like those in the order of Aaron, but through the power of an indestructible life, eternal life. The writer isn't claiming that Melchizedek never died, but rather that there is no record of his death. In the same way, there is no record of his birth. He doesn't have the family tree that says he's part of the priesthood, and neither does Jesus. Their qualifications are different. So why should the audience of Hebrews think this is a good thing? Why should they abandon centuries of law and tradition that was, don't forget, ordained by God in the first place? Well, let's look in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Look, he says, we set aside the old way because it was weak and useless. It was powerless to bring us to perfection. The old way cannot bridge the gap between a holy God and sinful man. It is powerless to make anyone righteous, and it is not strong enough to break the power of sin and death. But here is a new way, a better way, that succeeds where the old way failed, this way gives us a better hope because it enables us to be near to God. How can this be, they must wonder. They could never be near to God before. In Exodus chapter 19, the Israelites are in the wilderness at Mount Sinai and the people are told not to touch the mountain where God's presence is resting or they would be put to death. In the tabernacle, God's presence resides in the Holy of Holies, a sacred and shrouded area that only the high priest may enter, and even then, only once a year to atone for his sins and the sins of the people. These people are not accustomed to a God who invites them to be near. But it was not always this way. Look at Genesis 3, 8, where we see the scene of Adam and Eve being confronted by God after the first sin. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of God approaching. And in fear and shame, they hid. They knew that sound. 
before sin entered the garden, they were accustomed to being in the presence of God, physically near to him. They were not afraid of seeing God as the Israelites were, having been told that no man can see God and live. Instead, Adam and Eve were afraid of being seen by God, of having their sin exposed. And in the judgment that followed, what happened? Reading on in Genesis chapter three, verses 22 through 24, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We know the other punishments that came, right? Pain in childbirth for a woman, painful labor over the land for the man. But this was the deepest blow. Their sin had etched a chasm between them and their God like a great flood that cuts through earth and rock, leaving an impassable canyon in its wake. Their sin had physically and relationally separated them from their God. They would no longer be near. But even in that devastating judgment, there was hope that nearness would one day be restored. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the wake of their sin, God brings provision for redemption. This is the first prophecy of Christ, our first glimpse of the gospel. And it is a beautiful gift of grace and hope that the relationship between sinful man and our holy God will one day be restored. Nearness with God will one day be restored. And the writer of Hebrews says that this hope for restoration is found in Jesus Christ. Through him and only through him, we may once again draw near to God. It is a better hope because unlike the hope they were offered in the old covenant, this hope offers them complete and lasting access, communion, and reconciliation with the Father through the work of the Son. And as verses 20 and 21 state, they can trust this better hope because God himself has sworn it. Remember from session seven with Jillian that when God swears an oath, it is unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. What God promises, we can bank on. This better hope will not fade. Amber shared with us in session five that every high priest, including Jesus, is appointed the Levitical priests were appointed and secured in their priesthood by their lineage. But Jesus is secured in his priesthood by the decree of the creator, the one who never changes, the one who never lies, 
the one who always keeps his promises. Because God has said it is so, Jesus is a priest forever and therefore the guarantor of a better covenant. And he guarantees that the new covenant lasts forever. So what does that mean for us? It means that we will never have to wonder if this promise of eternal salvation in Christ will expire. We never have to worry that the terms of the agreement will change. There will never be a new requirement that we weren't made aware of, and the price will never go up. The covenant offered to us through Christ is complete and permanent. Now the writer of Hebrews is going to tell them and us why Jesus is the only high priest they need. Going on in verse 23. The former high priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is another way that the writer tells us that Jesus is superior to every high priest who came before him. They all died. Josephus, a first century Roman, Jewish Roman historian, records that there were 83 high priests who served in succession from Aaron to the time when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. They lie buried in tombs, but Jesus walked out of his. He will never need to be replaced because he will never die. He holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. If he didn't, his priesthood would be no better than what came before him. The Levitical priests interceded by receiving the sacrifices of the people and presenting them to God. Offerings that were designed to teach the people how to recognize sin in their own hearts, that it was a serious offense against a holy God, and that it could only be made right through the shedding of innocent blood. The people depended upon the work of the high priest through their sin offerings to make them right with God. Now, the writer of Hebrews is telling them that in the same way that they depended upon the Levitical high priest to intercede for them, they can depend on Jesus. But unlike the former priests, Jesus will always be able to completely save and constantly intercede for those who desire to come near to the Father through him because he lives forever. This is overwhelming evidence of God's love for us that he would provide a permanent way to meet all of our deepest needs for forgiveness, sanctification, and eternal salvation. And this brings us to our main truth for section one. Jesus, our true and better high priest, is the only way to a right and restored relationship with God. I'll say that again. Jesus, our true and better high priest, is the only way to a right and restored relationship with God. The Mosaic law couldn't do it. 
The Levitical priesthood couldn't do it. The old covenant couldn't do it. And neither can our good deeds, high moral standards, kind words, or generous donations. If the law was powerless and useless to attain perfection, we certainly have no hope of getting there on our own. We need a better way, one that is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what kind of perfection are you seeking? Are you seeking the kind that is designed to make us feel good about ourselves, however false and fleeting? Pursuit of that kind of perfection only leaves us empty. For believers, the law was designed to show us our imperfections and grow a longing within us for a better way. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He brings our faith to a desired goal, a right and restored relationship with our creator. Unlike the candy-coated perfection flaunted on Instagram, the perfection that Jesus offers is permanent and life-changing. Is this the kind of perfection that your heart longs for? Well, moving on into section two. In the final verses of chapter seven, the writer of Hebrews sums up Christ's qualifications as our eternal priest. So let's begin with verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So here the writer lists Christ's superior qualities as high priest, qualities that no earthly high priest ever possessed, making him the true and better high priest. First, he is holy. Now in scripture, the word holy typically means set apart. But in this instance, that's not the case. Here, the word means devout, pious, or pleasing to God. So by saying that Jesus is holy, the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing his faithfulness in his relationship to the Father as he learned obedience through suffering. Second, he is innocent. His punishment for our sins was undeserved. He paid the price for crimes that he did not commit. Third, he is unstained. Foreshadowed by the old covenant requirement that a spotless or unblemished lamb must be offered for atonement of sin. Although he experienced temptation to the fullest extent, beyond what we will ever experience, he never gave in. He is unstained by sin and is a true and better sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. Fourth, he is separated from sinners. In his earthly ministry, Jesus lived among sinners, cared for them, ministered to them, ate with them, loved them, and was a friend to them. But he never became like them. He is set apart from them morally and now physically because he ascended to heaven. And finally, he is exalted above the heavens. He is above all that has been created, the earth and the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, enthroned as Prince of Peace and King of Kings. He is worshiped and exalted above every created thing. 
How fitting, says the writer of Hebrews, that we should have a high priest such as this. He is uniquely suited to meet all of our needs and in ways that no other high priest could. British scholar and commentator F.F. Bruce describes his superior qualifications in this way. But whatever other reasons may be adduced to demonstrate the superiority of the new priesthood, there is one final argument. The new priesthood is better because the new priest is Jesus. Jesus, who endured sore temptations on earth. Jesus, who poured out his heart in earnest prayer to God. Jesus, who learned by suffering how hard the way of obedience could be. Jesus, who interceded for his disciples that their faith might not fail when the hour of testing came. Jesus, who offered up his life to God as a sin offering on their behalf. This same Jesus is the unchanging high priest and helper of all who come to God through him. Let's go on to verse 27. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Remember back in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, we read about the high priest needing to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for the people. Every year on the Day of Atonement, because the high priest can offer sacrifices for the sin of the people, he must first offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Kind of reminds me of Jesus saying to remove the log in your own eye before removing the speck from your brothers. And in Leviticus 4, we find the regulations for the sin offering. Here's what it says beginning in verse 2. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on all the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord." So in addition to the day of atonement, if the priest, if the high priest sins at any time, he must offer a sacrifice for that sin. He is told to lay his hand on the head of the bull, ceremonially passing his sin to the innocent animal, and then he must kill it before the Lord. Blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And did you notice that when the anointed priest sins, he brings guilt on the people? But the true and better priest, Jesus, never sins. So he has no need to offer sacrifices and he brings no guilt on the people. While the old covenant high priest passed his sin to an innocent animal without blemish for his own atonement, the new covenant high priest took the sins of humanity when he offered himself up as an innocent, unblemished sacrifice. The old priest offered sacrifices for themselves, but Jesus offered the sacrifice of himself. Blood spilled for the forgiveness of sins. 
And while the old priests had to atone for themselves again and again, Christ's sinless, enduring priesthood means that his sacrifice was once for all people, for all time. He took our sins upon himself. He was our scapegoat. And in return, he offers to pass his righteousness to us so that all of our impurities are washed away. No other high priest can offer this kind of atonement, a kind that puts an end to the cycle of sin and punishment, a kind that ends the shedding of innocent blood, a kind that not only removes the stain of our own impurities, but actually exchanges it for something better, something perfect, undefiled, and indestructible, something that we cannot find anywhere else, and something that the old covenant failed to bring, eternal salvation and reconciliation with God. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The law appointed men in their weakness, their mortality. They were unable to serve forever because they didn't live forever. But the oath of God that we find in Psalm 110, sworn hundreds of years after Aaron was consecrated as the first high priest, promised that there would one day be another better, perfect, and enduring high priest. Jesus, argues the writer of Hebrews, is the fulfillment of that oath. And this brings us to our final main truth. Jesus is our perfect high priest who has been appointed by God forever. Jesus is our perfect high priest who has been appointed by God forever. When God revealed Jesus as the only way to a right and restored relationship with him, the entire nature of our relationship with God was forever changed. The chasm between us and our creator had been erased. The blood has been shed for you. Your sins have been passed to another who is without blemish. Our perfect and enduring high priest has replaced your sins with his righteousness. And you have been invited to come near to God. Have you said yes to this invitation? If your answer is no or not yet, we hope you'll talk to a trusted group member, your study leader or pastor who can answer any questions you might have. In the book of John, at the end of chapter six, when Jesus asked if his disciples would desert him, Peter replied by asking, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There really is no one like him. His offer of salvation is free and unconditional. You don't have to be good enough to receive him. In fact, Jesus once said that he came to rescue the ones who recognize they will never be good enough to reconcile themselves to God without him. If you have said yes to his invitation, 
then the writer of Hebrews encourages you to endure, strive to enter his rest, long for spiritual food, and hold fast to what you have learned. Your faith is a treasure worth fighting for. The one who guarantees your salvation, your great high priest has passed through the heavens. He endures forever. In him, we have a sure and steady anchor for our souls. So let us hold fast to our confession because our high priest understands everything that we struggle with. He was tempted to sin just like we are. And the temptation he endured was greater than anything we will ever know, but he never gave in. He is spotless and pure. So then we can confidently draw near to the very throne of the king of the universe, a king who rules with grace and mercy and who helps those who come to him. While we are concluding our study in Hebrews here at the end of chapter seven, the writer has not yet offered his conclusion. There are six more chapters that deserve our attention and study. And we hope that you will read on and use the tools you've learned to help you read, understand, and apply the book of Hebrews to your life and to your faith. In our culture today, we are told that faith is blind. We are led to believe that our belief in a sinless man who was crucified, then rose again in his own power to offer humanity a chance at eternity with their creator, holds no more truth than the idea that a jolly old man in a red coat somehow manages to bring Christmas presents to every child on earth in one night while being flown through the sky on a bunch of Bambi's cousins. But the God of the Bible doesn't ask us to ignore logic in favor of fairy tales. Jesus himself, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus doesn't ask us to set aside logic and wisdom to prove our love for him. He longs to bless us with wisdom and discernment to know the truth. He tells us to use all of ourselves to love him, heart, soul, and mind. The God who created us, he designed us to ask questions. He made us with a desire to know things, and he gives us evidence and proof that he is exactly who he says he is. Our belief, our faith is rooted in knowledge, not wishful thinking. Knowledge that brings us to a solid faith where we don't just know about God, but we come to truly know him personally. George Guthrie had this to say about using our minds in our study of Hebrews chapter seven and about our love for God. He said, without right thinking, we are in danger of having a zeal for God that is not in accordance with knowledge. In a holistic approach to Christian faith, heart and head, co-lovers of God, dance. In Hebrews 7, the author is thinking critically and inviting us to think with him. His arguments are logical and well-crafted, drawing us into analysis of the Old Testament material. 
You cannot deal with Hebrews 7 in terms of the heart alone. He is leading us somewhere with this logic of his. We are moving toward a call to total engagement in the life of Christ. Heart, mind, emotions, strength. Nevertheless, we must begin here with rationales for why we must act a certain way. Here we, with the author of Hebrews, begin by loving God with our minds. This is what the writer of Hebrews wants his audience to understand, that Jesus truly is the better way and that they don't have to blindly believe because their sacred texts prove that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. This epistle is structured entirely around reasoned arguments designed to move the audience to a sound faith in Christ. And in doing this, the writer offers an early church example for us of apologetics, a fancy word that means reasoned arguments that justify our faith. Proof, like what an attorney offers in support of his arguments in a courtroom. Our faith is not blind. The proof is all around us if we are willing to see it. First Peter 3.15 tells us that we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who, ask, who asks for the reason for the hope that is in us. And the writer of Hebrews urges his audience and us to see those reasons in scripture and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the assurance our God gives, the solid foundation upon which every believer stands. So, are you loving God with all of your mind? Is your faith in Christ rooted in reason? It can be, it must be. If your faith is to survive the wind and the waves, it must be anchored in the greatest reason of all, the real, raised and reigning Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, who is the greater prophet, exalted above the angels, the true and better Moses, the one who leads us to the true and better rest, who offered himself as the true and better sacrifice, who brings us the true and better salvation, our true and better hope, and our perfect, eternal High Priest.